Up next on episode 48, Joel and Jeff discuss planning your career, the importance, or not, of localization, what makes a good moderator, and dealing with programmers who lack interpersonal skills. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Yeah, well, no, it, it's the M Audio. Uh, it's the M Audio people that they're, they're they're electrical engineers that they've assigned to the task of programming. Did not sufficiently read the documentation on USB, and they implemented the lame form of USB where the device doesn't uniquely identify itself. Right, and uh, therefore Windows doesn't know to recognize it later if you plug it in somewhere else or something or not that i did that but anyhow well too bad it's not open source hardware joel you can go in and fix it with a soldering iron yeah so let's uh we have a lot of stuff because we yeah didn't get to have a podcast last last week because someone was sick are you like blaming me now <laughs> <laughs> Before no, we start, no, probably that. not a good idea to record a podcast if you're sick because it, yeah. I, I was, I, I was, this, I was like deathly sick. I was just like asleep, like that kind of sick, like I'm going to sleep. <laughs> and then when I wasn't asleep, well, I don't even want to tell you what was happening, but it was something that would interfere with the, the, the continuous recording of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough said uh, with that. Hey, I'm dying of curiosity. What level programmer are you? I'm going to oh, put you at I just, nine. I just, jumped the shark. I uh, <laughs> Well, I was just thinking about that because I hate to talk about blog posts, but it does come up because you sort of think, like, w- what are you doing with your life, you know, ultimately? As a programmer, it's like, well, where do you go? What do you do? Uh-huh. You know? I mean, over a lifetime, it's like, what, what this thing we're doing, where where ultimately is all this going? And what do you want to get out of it? And I, I think it's a, it's a good question to ask. It's a good question to sit down and think, like, the classic interview question, you know, where do you see yourself in five years, is actually a really good question to ask yourself like every year. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where, what will be different about your career in five years from, you know, from, from the way it is today? Mm-hmm. And think about like how you could actually get there. And, and think about like what other people have done and like who you admire, who you don't admire. Um, and just try to have some direction to your career. I think for a long time, I, the epiphany I had was that I literally had been drifting like that feather in uh, in uh, Forrest Gump that drifts maybe, around. Maybe the paper bag in American Beauty, or the paper. I think it was plastic, a plastic bag. Plastic the plastic bag. bag in American Beauty, where you're just sort of drifting around. You don't really have a good plan, or really any plan, actually, for what you're trying to accomplish with your professional life. You're just doing things that you enjoy, which is great, but you know, there's no focus to it. There's no direction. There's no, you know, goal. I think that's most people. Maybe, I think Maybe, you're. I think you're weird in having this idea that there's some kind of a mountain, and and at the top of it are like like uh, um, uh, 
Knuthen and Dijkstra, and, and that's where you want to go, and that's cool. That's a that's a that's a wonderful ambition, but that's uh, I, I think you're you're relatively rare in, in the list of programmers as as having that as your end goal. Well, I, I wouldn't or say that I want to be on the, the same. First of all, I don't think it's even possible for me to be on the same mountain as those guys. Well, the same track at least. Yeah, but but just to to not be a feather was really my goal. Was was <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm totally not kidding. It's like I, I just sat down and I said, "This is ridiculous. What I'm doing is stupid. I don't have any real clear plan for my life at all. Like not even a little." And you know, I'm not a big planner, as you know, six to eight weeks. Uh, but still, this seemed like a bad idea to me at some level, right? That that there was no plan was mm. not good. Uh, so anyway, that's that's really the thrust of it. Not that we all have to be, you know these famous computer scientists at the end of our lives, but that you, you should stop and think about what you're doing and where you're going periodically. That's, that's really all I'm trying to say with that. My goal is that Fog Creek should have a skyscraper with a helicopter, helipad on the roof. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. I think there's a really good uh, Life in Hell. Yeah. Life in Hell cartoon. It's Bongo's Playland. I don't know if you've seen that one. I'll have to link it in the show notes. That's great. It's like every kid's dream, like playhouse writ large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a helicopter landing pad. <laughs> right, right. So you just have to make enough money to build Bongo's ultimate playland. You just you want to you want to be at work, and then you want to be able to get the hell out of there so fast, without going through any kind of like elevator kind of situation, or or subway, or walking through the streets and the sidewalks, or or being in a car stuck in traffic. You don't want to be like. And you're off in the, in the Hamptons. Short of teleportation, do you know what would be really cool? Remember those old pneumatic tubes that they used to have at banks where you would put mm-hmm. the money in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about, yeah. How, about a, how about a transportation system based on pneumatic tubes? Yeah. We where used, you like get in and you just go, we you used that send at, off the power of air. We used that at Fog Creek for, for sending bug reports before we got fog bugs. <laughs> we had one installed in every office. Yeah. But eventually the value of the copper, we just had to melt it down. Those were cool. I was obsessed with those as a kid. That was one of the neatest possible things. What was that movie, The Hudsucker Proxy? Is that the one? Oh, yeah. That was a big plot device in The Hudsucker Proxy. I had forgotten all about that. Yeah. So one thing that happened last week uh, that I was dying to talk about was the whole CN Prague thing that came up with the Chinese copy of Stack Overflow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... I, I don't want to. I mean, I hate to like be airing our dirty laundry in public and stuff, but th- we, well, we well, why of, is this dirty laundry? Well, I'm about to air dirty laundry in public. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> we sort of just like, you know, you and I talked, and we sort of knew that the content that users type into Stack Overflow, except for their personal data, we had sort of agreed that stuff should be uh, open source content, whatever that means, Creative Commons or just you know Creative Commons. That's yeah, right. basically, like when you put stuff, we had we had agreed philosophically. That if you go and you type a question or an answer into Stack Overflow or you do some editing, you're working on a on a on a body of work that is in the public good that you know that anybody yes. can right. And uh, uh, and the and the only exception was going to be, and we weren't going to necessarily open source our code because you know that we didn't that wasn't that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to make sure that people knew that they weren't putting stuff. You know, there's a certain certain website that I hate to mention by name. Um, but, the, but, but but actually, there are a lot of websites, even going back to IMDb, that started out as public or, or, or the CD, whatever that CD database was that has all the CD track listings, that started out kind of as public goods and suddenly some company suddenly owned them. 
and all the work that people have been contributing on the internet to making this big public good, it was suddenly, you know, the copyright of some large organization that was, that was you know, very protective of it. So we didn't want that, uh, we didn't want that to happen. We wanted people to know a priori, a priori, when they put content into, into Stack Overflow that, it, that it's, you're generating, you're, you're contributing to the public good and there's no chance that some company is going to take that content and say, okay, we own it now, thank you very much, and start charging for it, essentially. Um, and uh, so, but, but the, 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 the dirty laundry is that uh, all we sort of did is, is slapped a, a Creative Commons sticker of some sort on the bottom of every single page on the website, which doesn't really explain what that policy is. And there's sort of two bugs on what we did. One is we never really said, look, that this doesn't cover the CSS. It doesn't cover the HTML. It doesn't, you can't just copy our look and feel. Um, and number two, uh, we also didn't really provide a good mechanism for anybody who wants to, you know, exercise that right to get the, the data that was contributed in, in Stack Overflow in some way other than screen scraping. And if we catch people doing that, we have to ban them because we don't want to sit there, you know, we don't want to support that on our servers. Right. So, well, certainly um, we should have we should have clarified the position. Uh, to me, it was obvious. Well, maybe uh, it could always okay. be more obvious. <laughs> I guess. I, it, but it doesn't but it the, doesn't state that anywhere. I mean, it just says, "Hey, it's Creative Commons. Have fun." <laughs> so, um, so I, but I, I feel the, like the, the ironic thing yeah. he didn't actually copy the. Okay, so well, we should film, we should actually we should actually update. There, there are some listeners who don't know what this is. Even it's a it was a, a website that somebody did. I don't know who. Uh, that was a complete look and feel clone of, of Stack Overflow uh, down, down to the point of like literally actually a, a, there, there's, there's, there's sort of two intellectual property infringements so to speak. One is um, I think he actually copied the CSS file, right? Right. It's really a rip. It's not just a copy. It's a rip. It's like in the classical pirate sense. It's <laughs> yeah. like a complete like bite for bite copy of the exact look and feel of the site, and the reason this is a problem. Well, so, so that's so that's a co- that's a copyright violation, uh, except it's not clear that that is because you do have that Creative Commons thing on there. So I'm not re- really I, yeah, I actually I, didn't, I, I don't think it would have mattered if we had though. I don't think why? that would have stopped this particular. Oh, okay. Person. Well, all right. That so, but that that that's neither here nor there. I'm just talking about what the legal situation is. Now, the second problem, which Creative Commons, I'm pretty sure, does not address, is that by making a site that looks exactly like our site, which they did, except, of course, everything's in Chinese, um, they've, uh, um, th- they're violating trademark law, which is completely different than copyright law, in that they're attempting to, to look like us, and, and it's something in trademark law called trade dress. Uh, and and um, that, that would be a violation no matter how open source we, ma- we made our site. So, um, they, they do have to fix that. Yes. Uh, I just don't want there to be any confusion. I actually did write the guys, and they did respond, and I think I CC'd you on that or BCC'd you. Yeah. But uh, I tried to be clear. You know, first of all, it's nice to have something that people want to copy, first right. of all. just And I think we might have briefly touched on this previous podcast, but it is a compliment to, that people want to copy you. I mean, there's so much stuff out there that nobody gives a – damn about right? right so that people care enough to copy you is an incredible compliment and we do treat it like a compliment but where we do draw the line is like look, okay you can be inspired by stack overflow that's totally cool and, and honestly we can't stop you anyway i mean that's not we're not in the business of stopping people from doing whatever it is they want to do mm-hmm. as long as it's not hurting anybody uh but at the point which there could be confusion uh, about which site is which yeah except for the language thing which would be a big tip-off 
that's bad because then it looks like we created CN Prague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the we trademark. had nothing that's to the, do. That's the trade dress. Yeah, we had nothing to do with CN Prague. So if CN Prague sucks, it deletes all your deletes your hard drive or whatever. I mean, people could theoretically think that we were somehow responsible right. because the site looks exactly exactly like ours. Did you see that they actually copied the blog as well? Like. Completely. No, I didn't even see that. With the yeah. words of the blog? If you click on the blog at CN Prague, it looks exactly like blog.stackoverblog.com. Same category, same style. Are they just uh, translating the things that you post? <laughs> no, 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 no. They are <laughs> posting. Oh, the content is unique. That's the other okay. thing is they didn't they didn't take any of the content that was on right. Stack Overflow. Which that, is that the only exactly thing they could have They could have totally copied all the content. That is completely legal. There's nothing. Well, we have to. You can't. It's not enough for us to just think that this is our policy. We have to have a a page that says this is this is our policy. And and I think the just having a random Creative Commons link in the bottom of every page is if anything more confusing than 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 not. And I think what we need to do first of all is instead of just having Creative Commons link, um, you know, having a page that explains the, the license under which. Things, things are contributed and saying, listen, anything except for the user profile information, which is personal, is, uh, is, is, is open, is, is, is owned by the community, et cetera, is not, you know, whatever the creative com- is, is licensed under the Creative Commons license, basically. And, and it also needs to say, hey, if you type something into Stack Overflow, you are agreeing that these words that you type into Stack Overflow are going to be under this license. And the next thing we need to do to prevent the screen scrapers and also just to be legit here. Uh, you know, if we really are claiming that this is open and we don't want screen scrapers pounding our servers, we have to provide some mechanism for people to actually get that, that data if they want it. And it can be anything. I mean, we can say, listen, send us a $100 bill um, with, the, with the, the, the president facing the front of the envelope, uh, such and such an address, and we'll make you a, a, a tape, a dat tape with, uh, you know, an LTO-2 tape um, with, with a database backup and, and, you know, send it to you via camel jockey or something. I mean, it does, there has to be some mechanism whereby somebody that actually wants to get the, the, the raw data can get it. It doesn't have to be a download link, but I mean, it, 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 but there has to be some way, I think. Well, this is, this is a, a pretty highly voted item in user voice, largely because we've been satisfying, well, not recently, but prior to this, we were satisfying a lot of the user voice requests as, as we got to them in, in basically vote order. And that's a very highly voted item, and, and we do plan to get to it. The, the actual main barrier to that at the moment is that we have to remove all the personally identifiable information from the right. database. Yeah. Like, and I'm a little nervous because of the whole AOL. Remember when AOL released all that anonymous data? Yeah. That was like not, in fact, anonymous at all, and like everybody was able to track everybody in there? Right. That kind of freaks me out a little. Right. Like and believe me, I'm totally down. I I really believe in this in the CC Wiki thing, and I I want to follow through, but I don't want to get in serious trouble. You know, like AOL basically is all I'm trying to say. I think what I'll do actually is I'll blog about this on the blog, try to get some feedback on that because I definitely want to avoid the AOL problem uh, right. before we do right. this. Right. Uh, and and it, it it's on the list. It's just not a not a super high priority, but it's definitely on the list. So the, Google's Chinese trans, translation tools are actually surprisingly good. I mean, we were able to go in and translate a lot of things that were going in on CN Prague just to figure out what's going on and get reasonably comprehensible English out of it, which shocked me. Mm-hmm. But one of the funny things that we saw was there somebody asked a question on CN Prague, essentially asking isn't this exactly like Stack Overflow? And the translation was very funny. The translation is that Google gave was, why this child like a two-site printout of this mold? 
<laughs> which I thought was very funny because that is kind of what it is. It's like yeah, it's you know, like a moldy a version. And... Yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that was really perfect. Uh, now, part of me is sympathetic to what they're trying to do because I think they're trying to have a local, you know, hacker programmer culture site mm-hmm. that's in their own language, and that's something we're probably not going to get to. Why not? In any reasonable time frame? I think that's a mistake, but. Talk about that. Well, I don't think it is for our audience. And I kind of had the blog post about that, which was that I think that English is, you know, the de facto standard language for programming. And I think that's, all um, the good there, are fi- there, are, there, are, there are five languages for, for which that's not true. And you can tell because those are the five languages that Visual Studio is actually localized into. And, and I noticed this because we, I have a little Visual Studio plugin for Fogbugs that I wrote myself. And um, the, I get the bugs for those those five. I think it's I think there's five languages of Visual Studio. If there are five important languages that Visual Studio is translated into, and uh, tons and tons of that MSDN content is is translated, um, but not into 39 languages, but in, into 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 five languages. And these are languages where, for whatever reason, there is a very very large body of working programmers that are just not as happy in English. I mean, they may know English and they're willing to use English if they have to. But mm-hmm. you know, it's just slower for them. They'd just rather you know use the language that, that's this faster and easier for them if if that's available. And um, th- those are, in my experience, uh, uh, German, uh, Spanish, uh, French, um, Japanese, and Chinese, and Latin. Well, um, this you know uh, Swahili. <laughs> <laughs> and I. I don't know. I mean, part of it is, and I acknowledged in my blog post where I talked about this, it's a little uncomfortable to say it because you do feel like the ugly American or the ugly English-speaking person. But I really think that for our audience, we have a small team. We have a limited number of things we can actually do in any reasonable amount of time that's not six to eight weeks, right? Mm -hmm. And localization is still pretty hard. (laughs) And I think serving the primary audience, which is English-speaking programmers is, I think, by far the most important thing. And I think if, if we get that right, really right, and concentrate on keeping that right over a year or two years or however long it takes to get to this, I think that's more important than killing ourselves trying to localize really early and maintain those communities. Well, this is, I mean, this is the decision that almost every startup makes. I would even go so far as to say every startup, which is the localization or internationalization or providing versions for different uh, markets is always sec- you know, second priority. And, and it's, not, uh, it's not a wrong decision. It's a decision that, I, that everybody makes. And what happens, um, just so you know, is that um, whatever – look at, look at, for example, uh, uh, Google or, or eBay. These companies launched uh, in the United States and in English. And they tried to localize aggressively, but sometimes there was a local fast copy company um, that just got there. Uh, they just got there faster, and and and, and took the market. So, um, if you uh, a, a good example, I, when, when last time I went to New Zealand, I noticed that there's this website in New Zealand called Trade Me, and Trade Me is just an eBay clone, and I, I'm almost certain that it came out after eBay and the, 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 the New Zealanders saw eBay and said, hey, let's try this. And it just didn't work because of the expense of shipping to and from New Zealand. And so um, they said, hey, let's make one that's New Zealand based. And they built a clone of eBay called Trade Me. And um, I don't, I, I'm not, I didn't research the story, but uh, the, 
the, the way I understand things, eBay tried to buy them, but by the time, you know, they, they, eBay tried to move into New Zealand and just couldn't because Trade Me already had critical mass. I mean, that's where the stuff was. That's where the people were. There's a very strong network effect. Uh, you, you don't sell, you don't want to auction stuff on a site where there's no buyers and you don't want to try to buy things on a site where there's no sellers. So there's just no way to move in as a second auction website. And um, so eBay was basically had no choice if they ever wanted to be in the New Zealand market, admittedly a small market, other than to buy Trade Me. And the price was just too high, and they and they gave up, and I don't think they bought it. And um, it, it, it's not just that; it's it's uh, um, you know Google sort of has the same uh, um, uh, the same story with uh, what was it Baidu? There's a company that they wound up buying like three percent of or something because they just got into China too late. Well, I don't think that those are at all the same. Scenario. Though, I think they're the same uh, scenario because I think that we're looking at a no, market. Well, no, no, no. Hold on. Let me, you had a long diatribe there, and I want to interject yeah. because you're talking about selling physical goods, which have no. physical what? What? limitations. Google. eBay. Google. eBay. Your first example was eBay. That's okay, buying language. And I, 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 don't, don't, don't concentrate on the selling physical goods. Concentrate on the fact that okay, eBay well, did searching, not care about Searching is, is culture dependent. Programming right. is more like mathematics in the sense that it's numbers. You're not going to localize pi. Right, the Chinese wait, 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 stop. Pie. So you're saying that there is no such thing as people that want to speak about talk about programming in the Chinese language. And they're going to do the programming yeah. in the English keywords because they have to. That, that's that's and, actually and not true. They're going to have to learn some of it, regardless. Now, I agree, it's not the entire market, but I think the focus is we're talking about something to the extent that programming is like mathematics. Uh-huh. You have a common language, which is the keywords and like the comments and stuff like that is primarily in English. Mm-hmm. So there's a limit to how good you can be as a programmer without learning English, in my opinion. Now, it's not to say that you can't have local culture that's complementary. Listen, all this is but true, the, but this is not actually realistically the way the world works. It's just not. I don't I mean, know. A, I mean, I, a, I've a, read I've read hundreds, if not thousands, of comments on this topic, and mm-hmm. all of them basically said the same thing, which was that. You can't really be a good programmer without learning English. That doesn't, that doesn't of, matter. That doesn't mean that there isn't a huge community of people whose English is either not strong enough or who just prefer to use their local language in, like, like programmers in China, who will just go to the Chinese language site if that exists first. They will. And why would you can sit serve? there and you can tut-tut them and say, you must learn English. It is the lingua franca of programming. And but these are the second-tier programmers. These are not, it this is not our audience. Oh, oh, they're not good enough for us because they don't speak English well enough. Well, um, what I'm saying is you can, we can't do all these things at once. So no, we I agree have that. to pick. I agree with that. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying they suck. I'm saying that we have to serve one audience really well. Rather right. than doing a bunch of things crappily, let's do one thing really well. Right? And you've got to pick your battles. And I right. don't think that's a battle that's that what, makes sense. And that's sense what always happens. Song. And what happens, what, what, the, 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 the end game, just so you know in advance, is that Six years from now, when we're really big and we've got all this money and we're just trying to expand, we'll be like, okay, how do we expand? Well, the only opportunity there is there's this big, gigantic, untapped German-speaking market of really, really good programmers that just happen to prefer to read and write their questions in German. They could speak English if they wanted to. They just don't choose to. And they're being served by this beautiful Stack Overflow clone that has critical mass in Germany. And we have to either buy it or just give up on ever having that market. And so you've sort of limited your growth in certain markets. And now I've, now I've presented the story uh, with, with regards to uh, language, language markets like the Chinese. Like I think what they are is Chinese, uh, German, and Japanese, then Spanish. Those are the four. I 
probably care the most about. Um, just because I know that those are audiences where there's a huge amount. I mean, if you go into a Japanese bookstore, uh, you will find more programming books in there written in Japanese than you will find in an English speaking, in an English bookstore in America. There are, pro- I, I, I don't know if this is numerically true. I just know statistically that when I walked into bookstores in Tokyo, they have way more books on programming topics than, than you can get in English. Uh, that are written in Japanese, and there's a lot of English text there. But believe me, they don't have in in, in the, the Tokyo bookstores. It is really hard to find uh, an, an English language programming book. They just buy them in Japanese, and so those are the those are the markets I would I would care about. But that's just language markets. Think about also things like IT. I mean, we want to do IT. We want to do uh, a website for um, system builders. We might want to do you know a gamer site or something like that. There's just sort of other categories of sites we want to go in. And uh, I think it's pretty important to get there before somebody else just clones Stack Overflow and does another website that's exactly like this in those spaces. But I think it's an illusion that's even to happen anyway. I mean, the copies that are being made are not really great copies, in my opinion. Like, I think that, first of all, we continue to evolve the site. I mean, there's tweaks we do all the time that are really significant in terms of how the site works and sort of the social rules of how, like Bounty, for example. I don't know that CNPROG has any concept of Bounty. Mm -hmm. I also know that CNPROG, you have to log in to do anything there, Mm -hmm. which misses a huge point that came up, you know, in our site was that, you know, we're we're all about reducing barriers. Mm -hmm. We don't make you log in to do stuff. So already they're getting it wrong. It's kind of like the crappy iPod copies that that are you know all over the market, but there's one iPod. That's just, you're just looking at, at the first couple of it. sites that are sprouting up. Somebody's going to do it right, and and then and we're going to not be able to get into that 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 market, whatever it is. Well, I, I think that's just fear-driven development. I mean, I don't think that that's in fact true. I mean, I think there's just a broad, generic... Somebody's going to make... Look, this, I'll, I'll bet you this. I don't know if it's this Chinese site or something. Somebody's going to make a site for... What about, well, you know, what about Japan? Like, I know I'd love, I'd love for all Japanese programmers to speak in English really well, but, but they don't. And there's a lot of programmers in Japan. It's probably the second or third largest market for programmers. And, for example, we don't have a lo- localized Japanese version of Fogbugs, and we sell almost nothing in Japan because we, we, don't, we, we don't localize nothing. And, and it is a... A market that's just as big and just as important, not not quite as big, but almost as big and almost as important as, as, as the English-speaking market. And, and let's say localization adds another 5 or 10% to the costs of developing your software, 20%. Um, well, boy, boy this is social of, software. How would I even know that the Japanese content was correct? I can't you don't. You don't have to. You it. don't do this. No, that's, you hire people who know Japanese. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> my, but my point is that you, you, I can't control it because I don't I – don't, the content is built by those people. I mean, yes. you have to have people. The whole, uh, yes. the whole social software Correct. is a mirror of the audience thing. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's not the same thing. You're, you're treating it like a copy of Word. It's like, well, you just localize Word and then you sell it. Well, what if in that culture the yeah. model doesn't work? What if it does? I mean, it's social software. I mean, that's the other risk there is I, I think that you have to think about the audience. Yes. And since I'm not Japanese and I don't know the audience at all, it would be very You're difficult not, for me to I tell. would never have you do the Japanese version. Like the, the way to do a Japanese version is to find somebody who really knows the Japanese developer market and knows J- Japanese developer mentality and knows the American developer mentality and knows how to translate these things and knows what features you might have to add and what features you might have to remove. 
and does a really good localized version. I mean, there's there's all kinds. If you look at the the, the Japanese version of Microsoft Word, it's not just a translation of the strings. There's all kinds of you know ability to make little greeting cards that are in there that are um, and and they have. Uh, these like long snippets because they're these long formal phrases that you always include in Japanese letters, and so so uh, Word has all these features to handle those. So so you do add another small number of features which are necessary to make the product uh, truly uh, native. Right, they're well, there, it, but I mean, and you, yeah, you would have to hire, uh, you know, you have to hire professionals or get local partners and that kind of stuff. But uh, all, all I'm really saying here is that uh, it is extremely common. First of all, I think that your logical argument that everybody just should learn English is, uh, or should know English or whatever, is, is, or, or that you know, first-class versus second-class developers or that English is a lingua franca, that's totally true, but not really relevant because I guarantee you just walk into that bookstore in, where was I the other, oh, Germany. I was in Germany, and there was a, there's a bookstore right by the uh, museum in Munich, the, um, the, the Modern Art Museum, like two blocks away from that, that is just a programming books bookstore. And it's like a whole oh, uh, I can't believe we're programming. These are books. dead tree books. This yes. is the future. Yes. You're telling me that the future no. is dead tree books. All I'm telling you is that if you walk into that bookstore, every <laughs> book is in German. And there's no, there's no, there might be a bookstore somewhere with programming books in, in Silicon Valley, although I doubt it. But this is an entire bookstore of dead tree books that are all in German. And, and that, that means that the local audience of programmers, and they speak beautiful English in Germany, and they still prefer to read their books about programming uh, in German. Do they like their code samples in German? Well, I'm not saying that you got to translate the word for <laughs> in a for loop uh, or while. But uh, um, Now, if we had some other audience, I would totally be much more likely to agree with this. What kind of if it was audience? like car enthusiasts, like we had talked about the question last week about what if there was a site for gearheads? You know, I think you're just being unrealistic about the... The, the German, the Japanese, and the Spanish programming prog- programmers. I think you're just you're just um, I, I think you're just being unrealistic about w- w- how much English they know. I mean, I yeah, fine, gearheads, yes, I agree, but I, I just I, I just think you're you're actually you're you're, you're um, and 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 what's what, well, what I, I mean what again? I learned, what I, I switched I switched from VBNet to C Sharp because I got so frustrated because I could never get good code in VB. I, yeah. I ended up translating everything. Yeah. And over time, it just wears you down. Right. I mean, you you realize that this is just such a waste of time. If you want to do really good code, I, I couldn't do it in VB even if I wanted to. There just wasn't enough, weren't enough people writing VB. Yeah. Period. Yeah. For me to be effective, and I think if you're if you are a good programmer, you eventually realize that it's inevitable. You have to, you have to do whatever the the majority are doing. But you know what, A Press, my publisher, A Press has taken books that were written in German and translated them to English and published them in the U.S. market. So. It's not really true. I don't think it's really true that, that all the good stuff is happening There's all these complaints about the translations. I mean, everywhere you go, people are like, ah, That's the translated stuff is crap. Yeah, sometimes they are. It really, really depends on the language. And it also I mean, depends a little bit on the culture. Like, for example, you know, Germans are a lot more fussy about grammar and stuff like that, say, than, than Spanish speakers. And, and Spanish is a problem because there's you know, 18 different versions of Spanish, even though they deny it. And uh, so, so, you know, th- these things are sort, sort of sort of tricky. They're, they're, they're culturally tricky. And I certainly don't know all, all the answers to them. Well, here's one thing that I found, though, that was really interesting when I was... Um, all the work that I've ever done on localization is that if you go to somebody in Germany, for example, or, or Japan, where all the books are in German or in Japanese, and you say, hey, what do you guys think about? Is it okay if I do this in English? Or, you know, like I gave a speech in Japan um, in English. 
And I spoke slowly and clearly. And I actually said every and, and I had a in, in Japan I had a, a simultaneous translator. And I, I said a sentence, and then the translator translated it, um, which was tedious. But I could tell by when people laughed at the jokes how many people understood the English and how many people uh, didn't. And this is a room of professional developers. There are 400 professional developers in Tokyo uh, at the Shoeisha Summit. So these are, um, these are really the elite of, 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 uh, 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 of Japanese developers. And um, 20, 20% of them maybe understood uh, what, I, what I was saying in English. Mm-hmm. And what was weird, though, is if you ask any of them, they're like, okay, just say it in English. It's okay. Or if you ask them, if you email them, they're like, no, just give it to us in English. That's okay. We know English. We know, we, we know English. In other words, they're, they're always going to sort of deny. They're always perfectly happy to go along with the official story that English can be the lingua franca of programming. They're not going to deny that. They have an inferiority complex about their own language or something. That's not really true, but, but that, they'll, they'll sort of deny that, which is where, where you get into trouble, which is when you ask people, do you want a localized version, et cetera, et cetera, they tend to say no. And then they'll tell you some story about how they got this localized version that had some bug in it or that the translations were terrible and nobody wanted to use it and they just went back to the English version. But what they're talking about there is like you know, a copy of a version of Windows where the file menu is a different thing and that's that's very different than a paragraph of text telling telling you about something you know writing a paragraph asking a question writing a paragraph answering a question is very different than just like a couple of words in the menu bar all right we beat that one to death so um uh yeah raid raid arrays gosh i want to go back i want to try to find (laughs) (laughs) actually i had something else for us to talk about Oh, okay we had an email from shia loney okay Shy. Uh, Sounds like a Hebrew. And I believe he worked on, I want to say, Yahoo Answers. Oh. Didn't he? Or Answers.com? I'm probably getting this wrong. I didn't see this email. But he had some feedback for us. I think, let me, it was about picking moderators. So one thing we're trying to do on ServerFault, and that is going to be the name now, ServerFault.com, simply because all the other names were so much worse. Yeah. we're going to actually promote moderators from the community, which we haven't really done on Stack Overflow. We have, you know, people gain abilities on the site as they get reputation, but they never really achieve full moderator status, which we have, mm-hmm. um, because we were kind of scared right. in terms of letting that happen. But I realized if we're going to do that on on oh, Serverfault, yeah, yeah. yeah. we really need to do it on Stack Overflow first to see how it's going to work. Community moderators. Yeah, community moderators. Just take somebody from the community and just right. promote them all the way up to full-blown moderators. And it's not – you know what? I think – I remember what he said. He says, like, just don't take your highest-ranked users because they're too – they could be really partisan or they're just, like, too emotional about things. Or, you don't want to take your top 10 users in, of, in karma necessarily. Well, wasn't that his, his point? Or am I completely confusing two emails? Uh, I just want to make sure I get this right. So wikianswers.com is where Shia worked. I don't know if he works there anymore. And his point was that, first of all, moderators can actually do damage. Uh, they Their experience was when they promoted some of their best contributors, right. A, they lost the contributors. The contributors sort of stopped contributing the same way. Yeah. They, spended more, they spent more time, you know, policing the system than actually helping to build it. Yeah, so, they became crossing guards. Yeah, you sort of lose All a monitors. contributor in some scenarios, which is not good. So if you take one of your best contributors and sort of convert them into a cop, then they spend more time doing that. 
And that's a negative. And then the other downside was that, and this, I don't know if this would apply to Stack Overflow. I mean, maybe people brought up that if if you promoted somebody that was, say, a big Java enthusiast, then they're naturally going to promote the Java stuff because that's what they know. And maybe even something they don't even realize that they're doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, their own biases, their own ideas, and things like that get sort of promoted just because they'll put more attention in those areas. Yeah, it's sort of like taking a student in the fifth grade and making them be in charge of the fifth grade. It's like sort of not not exactly the pool that you want to be selecting from. I, I do think there are some people that would be good at it. And I think yeah. my observation for this would be you want somebody that's not controversial, uh-huh. <laughs> that doesn't cause friction on the site somebody that's respected yeah uh, but mm-hmm. not necessarily one of your major contributors no. i think maybe that's the one piece of information i got out of that was like don't take your your highest contributors and make them um moderators because it's that's a different like, there's a different i guess there's a different personality type. i don't know how you would necessarily figure out who they are but there is sort of a you know a secondary somebody you want somebody who's going to come right to the site regularly because they you know they love the site they're there all the time but maybe they don't have as much of a kind of an emotional, I don't know, they, they don't get as emotional about things. Absolutely. I think you can't be too invested. That's sort of the paradox. And I think it's also the paradox of like public service. Sure. Where the type of people that ultimately want to become president yeah. aren't really the people that you want to be president. No. <laughs> you want the people that only reluctantly would go into service. Right. Uh, because they're just less invested in you know the power structure. They're more interested in just getting things done and having a functioning system than any particular power trip or, you know, personal goals they may have. Right, right. So it's tricky. And we are going to put it up to a vote, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to tweak, I'm going to reserve the right to pick the the people that we think are. Wait, you're going to actually have like a vote to be a a moderator of Stack Overflow or of, uh, of, 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 uh, the Rack Shack. What's the new one? Server Fault. Rack, uh, Server, (laughs) Server Fault. Now you're getting me confused with the names. You're like you're like a Mad Lib. You're just like <laughs> filling the blanks. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know a word, but I want to say something anyway, so I just say a different word. Yes. Uh, so we are going to put it up to a vote, but I reserve the right to override the vote results. To well, why whatever. don't you just give yourself 800 votes and don't tell anyone? Gotta go like this. Well, I want to get an idea of who the community wants, and then I think we'll pick from sort of the top three or four. It's sort of hard to think. tell. I mean, I'm kind of like. I guess I don't, I don't, I mean, I use Stack Overflow on average of 10, 20 minutes a day, but I still don't, I mean, I see names occasionally, but it's not like I really know these people. Well, I think the people that participate heavily on the site actually do know some of the personalities okay. and I think have some preferences. So yeah. I think they, their input is, I think, important to this process. And it will be the model f- from which we pick the server fault administrators or moderators as well. Maybe you want to take, um, uh, geez, this is, this is, this is too much work. It might be neat to do one of those little social graph type things to see how much affinity certain people have for certain tags and if there are any tag clusters. Like, like my intuition would be there's probably a big old Java tab cluster, tag cluster and there's a big old .NET tag cluster. There's not a tremendous amount of overlap between them, and it might, might be cool to have one person from the Java side and one person from the .NET side if you could somehow figure that out. Not that I want there to be bias, but just almost to prevent bias or to make sure that kind of the different sub-communities that aren't quite as visible but are really there are uh, are properly uh, represented. No, that's completely valid. And people brought that up in the comments to the blog post as well, and I, I do agree with that. 
we want to get some variety in background. Right, right. For the moderators. And since, you know, we have .NET backgrounds, it would make sense to pick somebody that isn't from that. So is there going to be like a nomination process? Maybe you should ask people to like nominate themselves yeah, and write a little statement. Yeah, we already had a nomination. It was what? the comments to the blog entry. Oh. No, I was going to say just have a system whereby anybody that wants to run puts a little statement up explaining who they are and what they did and why they want to do it. And then there can be an election. No. Well, I don't Just know that like we'll do that. School. But people are free to obviously refuse the nominations that other people have put up. Like John Skeet already did that. Yeah. For, I think, completely valid reasons. And actually, it's interesting that John said that. And I know he listens, so I, I will tell him that I actually agreed. And I don't think I would have allowed John to become a moderator. Not because I don't think he's awesome, because he's great. I mean, yeah. in every possible dimension. Of course. But just because it didn't feel right. It didn't feel – it felt like rewarding the most – visible member of the community with the most obvious thing. Yeah, yeah, that, but you know what? It also, to me, it feels like you've got a team of star programmers and there's one superstar programmer that writes 50 times as much code as everybody else and he just cranks <laughs> and cranks and cranks all day long and you put him right. in charge of making sure that nobody takes cookies during tea time. Everybody yeah. only gets one cookie and so he has to spend an hour every day passing out the cookies. Yeah, my gut, it just didn't feel right. A lot of times it's just a gut feeling of you know what feels right and I think we want to reach in a little bit and pick some of the people in the community that aren't quite as notable mm -hmm. and elevate them up. Mm -hmm. That was my feeling. So that's the direction we're going there. You know what? Uh, you know one way that if you wanted to try to find people that you don't really necessarily know who they are algorithmically, um, do you have a way of finding people that like how often people have hit the site? Because so, what you want to find is somebody that kind of visits every day but not very much. Just sort of slowly and steadily over a long period of time. You don't want people that you know came in for a week, went crazy, and then disappeared, and maybe earned a lot of points that week, or people who, um, you know, contrary-wise, just come in every Saturday and spend a lot of time. You, you kind of want the kind of people that are just sort of buzzing slowly, humming on the site every once in a while, like every day they go in, they do something, because there's a certain kind of regularity to their to their pattern that, first of all, makes them useful as moderators because they'll be there to see things uh, regularly. And you know, and without, and, and also you know, they're kind of not going to overdose. Hey, you know, the last six months, this guy's been coming every day. Well, right. I think you want somebody in between. You want somebody that right is invested in the site, but not too invested. Right. But it's just it's, and you, it's the steadiness of, of visits. I think that I'm trying. No, I, I agree totally. It has to be somebody that's coming daily, but not obsessively. So we'll see where that goes. I, I had promised to put up a vote, and I need to get cracking on that. I think I'll do it over the weekend. Okay. So we have. A vote. Okay, let's talk about rate arrays. <laughs> oh, the downtime thing? Yeah, I thought that was one. It's not on your list? Uh, it's kind of on the list. It's not very exciting. Oh. Um, something triggered a reboot boot on the server. We don't know what exactly yet. But as part of the exciting reboot process... Probably Apple QuickTime decided it had just had enough and needed to upgrade itself. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have had this dialogue up on the screen asking you to reboot now for 48 hours and I'm sick of it. We're yeah. rebooting, baby. You need to lay this yeah. QuickTime codex. And there was PR. some really annoying, redundant raid uh, alert message, which has since been patched out in the BIOS. Uh, and it was so it was hanging at the press enter to continue, which we couldn't see until Jeff went down there. And I don't want to bug Jeff because it was the middle of the night. We, but we, the important thing that probably came out of this was we were able to test our contingency plan. Mm -hmm. We had had a sort of an abstract contingency plan of we have extra servers, extra web-tier servers, and we would just press one of those into service if, God forbid, anything happened to the database server. Right. But being the six to eight weeks type person that I am, 
I hadn't actually gotten around to doing the configuration of the server. <laughs> right. So I got the exciting experience of like configuring it all in like two hours. I had to actually download the ISO and get it all set up and you know reboot. The, of course, there was some hot fix that had to go in and the system had to be rebooted and it took way longer than it should have. So that that was on me in terms of not having our contingency plan in place and actually sort of ready to go at some level. But once we did, it was fine. I mean, the alt, the backup server, um, it's not nearly as powerful as the real database server, but it did, it did fine. Mm-hmm. So I, I was actually glad we had the opportunity to test that because that was a pretty catastrophic failure for us. So I have some was questions. to have the database essentially disappear. Yeah. Uh, questions? What were my questions? So is that still running? Is that still operating as the database server? Or have we We're back on the real database server. We actually updated the BIOS. There's been like three BIOS revisions for the freaking RAID controller. This is not good. When I, the, I, when I first started messing around with RAID, I got so many emails saying, you know what? Just another freaking point of failure, Joel. You think that it's going to prevent a point of failure, and it doesn't. It's just one more thing that gets in the way and makes things break. And um, that sort of surprised me. And lo and behold, I found the same thing uh, to be true. Uh, with with my experience with yeah, I don't know what it is, but the, you know the sort of the the ten thousand dollar server kind of RAID controllers. I don't know what the good RAID controllers are, or what the bad ones are, but I really get the feeling that to make it work takes a better system administrator than I I was ever able to be, and um, I, it's sort of maddening. But you just get more failures on the RAID systems. You know what? We, for for a while, we we bought a lot of RAID uh, just to just because I didn't want. I, I saw a lot of people. There was a time when a bunch of hard drives failed and people at Fog Creek were, we had backups, but people at Fog Creek were spending a day rebuilding their system from backups. And it was just a day wasted. And I said, this is absurd. And so I got uh, RAID, mirror, RAID mirroring for, for all the workstations. And those failed more often than a hard drive would fail. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. And, and, and people say this, and actually, part of the RAID thing was an experiment, but I think what I've learned from it is really two things. One is that I think software trumps hardware, which mm-hmm. we've known for a long time, right? Being programmers. But I think software RAID, if you can do it, is by far the way to go. Because um, you're meaning the RAID that's built into Windows? or No, no, no. Well, actually, I mean like Linux-type RAID, where yeah. the operating system is doing everything. You know why? It assumes those, the hardware is totally dumb. Those hardware you know I mean? companies think that software is easy. They just don't realize this. And so they take their worst electrical engineer, somebody that they don't want touching a soldering iron, and they say, go, go do the software for a controller. And, and these guys are some of the worst programmers you've ever met, and they're writing in C. Now, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just saying there is a consistent, consistent thing I've seen over 20 years is that the people at hardware companies that write device drivers are not... It's the same thing we had when we tried to start this show because the M-Audio engineers that wrote the USB drivers don't, don't know how to read the damn USB spec, and I can never get any of these audio cards to show up in the same place as they used to be. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I think that software braid, if you can get away with it, I don't think we can really get away. Well, we might have been able to get away with it on the uh, database server, because I think the Windows RAID has this limitation where the boot drive right can't be can't be RAID, which yeah. is like annoying. Um, but yeah, certainly, I, I think the software solutions are going to be more flexible, more reliable. Anytime you treat the hardware as like a dumb device, you generally do better than going with the fancy hardware that's supposed I would to actually, be Yeah. I mean, I, I would fancy. even consider an architecture where you've got, instead of even doing RAID, just you just got a very, very high-quality server-level hard drive, like a Velociraptor or something in there. Is that what it's called, a Velociraptor? Pterodactyl? 
Um, you've got a nice <laughs> or just or just multiple servers. You know the classic cloud type computing scenario where yes, you, and then and what you do is you, even though you, you're still using SQL Server, you're uh, you're log shipping like almost continuously to another machine, and that's your failover strategy. Your failover strategy is there is another machine which could be your SQL Server in three minutes if the first yes. one fails. Yeah, so that was my and first question. I have a uh, mm. yeah, that's that's pretty much the plan. Okay. Yay. Uh, second question, do you, do, I, I guess you don't have this, but the servers that I bought in the early days for Fog Creek all had this little remote, remote access card on them. It's a, it, was oh, like a little, it was a little card. It has a computer on it, and it runs VNC. And not only that, but the, the newest generation, the Dell ones, and I've actually done this for a while, um, were extremely slick in that they can run VNC even before any kind of operating system is booted. So you can actually connect up to them. You can reboot the computer, and you can watch over VNC you know, while, the, while the RAM test runs, and you can just completely control the computer from beginning to end, you know, even literally while it's off. Right. Now, I actually talked to Brent uh, about that because he has a lot more experience with those, and he gave me this really long, detailed email mm-hmm. that scared me so much that I was like, I'm not even going to try that because he just basically listed all these scenarios where all these BIOS versions that had to be exactly right. And no, there's baloney, sort of the weird... ones I've never had a single problem with them since the, the, the third generation of the Dell ones had a problem because their stupid CPUs would crash more often than the server itself would crash. <laughs> and so every time you needed one of these things, it was crashed. But yes. uh, when the generation four, I think they call them Drax or Yes. D-R-A-C, the, the Dell one. But as soon as their, their their fourth generation came out, they were perfect. They were amazing. They, they saved my ass so many times not having to go down to the data center. Because you could just do everything. Not only that, they, had all these, they have all these well, cool features. On, like you can be like, I, I need I actually, to boot okay. off of an emergency recovery floppy. You put a floppy in your computer, and your server down at the data center then boots off of the floppy that's in your computer. They're awesome. Okay, that's cool. What you're describing is very cool. But... I think if I was going to do that, what I would go with is basically they have what you're describing, but as external boxes that work yeah, with KVM, any server. KVM over IP. Yes. That's yeah, but they don't do I the boot drive. They don't do with. the remote boot drive thing. I'm a jiggy. No, they can't do remote boot drive. That makes sense. But in terms of just remote boot, like yeah. this problem that we have, the press enter during would BIOS, have solved it. Yeah. we could have remotely done that without waking anybody up. That is um, correct. If this, I'm not willing to make the investment yet because we've already bought so much hardware. Um, but if this comes up again, I definitely will do that. Yeah, it eventually will. The, um, the, uh, what was I going to, the, uh, the, 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 what I used to do with the Dell ones, it would add, you know, 200 to $300 to the cost of the computer. And I would always use that as my negotiating point. So I would always just like negotiate to buy a bunch of Dell servers. And then I'd call up at the last minute and say, these have Drax, right? And they'd be like, oh no. And I'd be like, oh, sorry, deal's off. I thought these were priced with the Drax. And then we'd go to their manager and they'd get me the Drax for free. And, that would be ah, used car that. sales. Yes. It's very exciting. <laughs> I know it's a pain in the ass. Did they did they sell you that undercoating that goes on the underbody of the server? No, but this is actually a good thing. Rust. Actually, I should ask my sysadmins if they still like those those drag cards, if they still even use them, or if they have some kind of other uh, system that they're using. Um, well, the general theme of what you're describing, I'm for. Mm-hmm. You know, which is that some way to control the server at a higher a higher level than More even abstract. The op- yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is definitely useful. I'm just it, – it's an optional item for these servers. Now, it looked really complicated, and Brent's email scared the crap out of me. You should complex. send me that. I don't I – don't, uh, I love Brent, but he's being paranoid here. 
Okay. Well, Brent's usually really sharp with this stuff. I mean, it's true. There may be reasons why it doesn't work, but there are also reasons when it saves your ass. And when it saves your ass, then that's great. Then you can reboot in 10 minutes instead of going down. Well, but but it's funny. What you're describing has the same failure mode as, you know, having raid mirroring for all the developers. You know, you're adding complexity to the system. Actually, no, no, no. They don't, I don't think, well, I don't know. Actually, I haven't seen Brent's email, but, but, but I mean, it's just, it's a little card that sits in there. It doesn't degrade the server in any way. It's just one more. If you're lucky, then you can connect to it. It's got its own IP address. It's got its own Ethernet port on the back. It gets its... I think it might get its power like in a slightly different way even. Maybe not. Maybe it just gets a power from the... But it doesn't get its power from the motherboard, so the computer can be rebooting and it's still up and running. It's just a little computer computer on a card that just sits in a special slot and right. uh, just has kind of a way of tapping into you know a few of the I.O. ports. They are cool, but I think if I was going to do it, like I said, I, I would prefer to be in a completely separate device from the server, so I could troubleshoot it independently. It could be separate. None of this crazy interaction with the the mains. The the, the symbiosis is what scares me. Mm-hmm. Where they're living in the same box, it just makes me really nervous. I'll, anyway, I'll forge you the email, and you can make your own okay. conclusions based on that. I think these are these are one of those things that are very very vendor dependent. Like the Dell one is really just a Dell one, and HP has one that's called like. IO lights out or something and from what I've heard the HP one is just not as good as the Dell one but you know maybe that's changed that was a few years ago and um, I don't know really what Lenovo thinks you should do whether they have a, their own kind of card they're, they're, it's one of those things that never really quite got standardized another another possibility which is kind of bizarre um, but maybe worth thinking about is uh, the VMware server approach where you build a big server and you use VMware servers and you you're, you don't care where your hardware is because your server is virtual. And if something goes wrong with your hardware, you just you know bring down the server and bring it up somewhere else. And then you have these VM, VMware server control panels that you can use to migrate from one machine to another. And those things are actually kind of cool. The high-end versions will actually migrate a running server from one piece of hardware to another while it's running. Wow. Cool. Um, okay. Do else? we have any audio questions this week? No, probably. I haven't even looked. We've well, already... If you haven't looked, then <laughs> I don't want to go down that road. We get a lot of random... E- okay, here's a, here's a new voicemail from an unknown caller. How bad could that be? Mm. Hi, Joel. This is uh, Demetrius from Brazil. Uh, I would like to ask you an uh, intriguing question. Uh, what would you do if you had in your team someone who is uh, technically uh, speaking, he's a contributor, he's, he does a good job on a technical level, but on a personal level, he is just an annoying person. Nobody's, nobody in the team likes him, he doesn't <laughs> get along with anybody. Uh, what would you do? Would you fire the guy just because he's annoying? Uh, what other kind of solution? I can't even answer that. I'm going to get sued. Bye. <laughs> that was a, that's a good question. I mean, certainly that comes up all the time with programmers, right? I mean, sure. you have the abrasive programmer who's really good. But not, yeah, but not so good at the social interactions. Yeah. I think that's actually, uh, it comes up a lot because if, if, you're, not, if you're not that good at, at, at social skills, um, you're probably going to enjoy programming more than hanging out with the other kids at the soccer field. Because, <laughs> you know, it's something that, that works for you, whereas the hanging out with the other kids at the soccer field doesn't, doesn't work so well. And so, so I, think, I think people that are lacking in social skills will be drawn to the programming profession. 
So what do you do? I mean, say you have somebody like that on your team, and you know they're, and like the caller said, it's he's contributing to the product. I mean, he's he's effective. Yeah. Yeah. He's just not effective interpersonally yeah. on the team. It's a, it, it's really a, it's really a a, a case by case basis. Is I don't know if there's an easy easy answer. Well, are there any techniques? I mean, what do you do? You isolate? Do you intervene? Sometimes you, you can I mean, intervene. Any, sometimes just, you can't. Like, is there a menu you could use to like? How do you even approach? Start approaching the situation? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I haven't had that many different experiences with this. There, there's a few things I can say. One is th- there is one particular form of um, not getting along with other people, or maybe just not being so great at the social dynamics that is sometimes referred to either correctly or incorrectly as being kind of on the you know Asperger's. Um, spectrum or, or slightly autistic or that, that particular a particular type of of uh, social behavior like not quite being able to read people's emotions not quite knowing what people are thinking about what you're saying at, at a given time and just not being not emotionally connecting with people and th- th- there's a th- there's a th- that's a particular category of 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 the the loner programmer or the programmer that doesn't really get along with his team so well um and uh um, it, you know, some of the behaviors may be correctable just by telling people, "Listen, I've noticed that you do this, and it bothers people when they do when you when you when you do that because of this, and you may not notice that. So, try to pay attention and try not 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 to do that exact thing, and we'll try to help you with that. And uh, um, that so stay st- stay specific and point to specific things. Yeah, and, that and may, just make sure they're aware that they're doing them. Exactly. And it may help and and what I've actually found actually is that the stereotypical Asperger's geek, I hate to use this term because everybody is unique and different, but but the nice thing about having Asperger's is that it probably doesn't bother you that much that you have Asperger's. And <laughs> not only that, but you are perfectly yeah. happy to be told you are being awkward. Please try to, you know, when you shake hands with people, please try to look at them in the eyes instead of looking down at your shoes. And then you just, and they're like, oh, thank you for that tip. And whereas in a normal, not normal, a, 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 a person who is low on the autism scale might even be offended when you're like, hey, try not to look at your shoes when you shake hands. But somebody who's an Asperger's geek is going to be like, oh, that's a really good tip. Thank you. <laughs> it's just a different, there's something about uh, that personality type that they're usually actually perfectly happy to be instructed in ways uh, to be a little bit more social. But on the other hand, it is sort of a finite amount uh, that you can really do without kind of exhaustive psychological intervention and, and face training and that kind of stuff. Where they, But, and there's, there's just a limit. I mean, you're not going to, have you ever really changed anybody's personality successfully? I mean, I know you got a baby, so <laughs> you're going you're, you're gonna to try. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, I, I think the general advice you're giving there, which is, you know, focus on the specific things that the person is doing. You know, it's not that you're a bad person. It's that these specific behaviors right. cause these specific problems. And actually, we've even had this a little bit on Stack Overflow where I have to I have to be the very reluctant intermediary between these interpersonal things that are going on. Right. Um, and, and I do have to point out that some of the behaviors are really not helpful, you know, like you're doing X and X is not endearing you to other people in the community. Right. right. So don't do X. Right. 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 And I, I actually like everyone on Stack. Overflow. I, I, there's nobody on Stack Overflow. I don't like there are right. behaviors I don't like. Right. And I think that the ability to tolerate other people who don't 
like all the same the same things you do and don't do all the same things that you like to do is actually a really desirable trait of a, a healthy community. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to have groupthink. You have to have some disagreement. But on the other hand, you have to have behaviors that are tolerable yeah. to all the people in the community. There's so that's certain, what I really focus on. Yeah. There's certain behaviors that it's sort of hard to describe. I mean, you can have I mean, there's certain behaviors that are just like, you know, this guy is an extreme douchebag. He's just a real jerk. He's hitting on the secretary. <laughs> but douchebag isn't helpful. It's like, what does right. that mean? Yes, exactly. So you have to you, you can pick pick specific things. Hey, dude, you're really loud, and nobody wants to high five you every time you say "in bed" to the end of a fortune cookie joke. <laughs> I, I do though. I do. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, you can pick you pick specific things like that, and uh, you know, it's possible to sort of modify them. But you're not you're probably not going to change somebody's complete personality unless they're 16 and they're just pretending to have a personality because that's what 16 year olds do. Um, and and also, I, I resist the, the idea of telling people, you know, you have to always be friendly and always be nice. No, and, of course not. You just have to get mean, along. You don't, but, but you have to get along and you have to be honest and you have to be right. rational. So then the second stage to say, if somebody's being productive, is are they really being productive? Like maybe they're getting their work done, but they're dragging down the rest of the team in some way. So, for example, if you've got a team of three people and one of them is, for whatever reason, just not – a, a cool guy socially. You just don't want it. the other two just don't like him and whatever. Well, that's a team that's not going to hang out together as a team because the other two don't want to. And maybe that lack of group cohesion on that team, the lack of cohesion on that three-person team caused by this one person is causing more damage than that person is adding in the value of the code that they're writing. So I could definitely see situations where you might say, you know, maybe on the surface they're doing the things in their job description, but they are, you know, their particular personality disorder, whatever it may be, is dysfunctional enough to remove enough value from the team that they are not actually really doing their job in a way that, that is productive. So that's another question you can ask yourself. Um, but then, you know, what it comes down to is the bottom line is that in so many cases, there are kind of three kinds of performers. They're the obviously great performers. They're the obviously bad performers. And then there's a lot of kind of, I don't want to say marginal performers, but there are people who are just basically doing their job. They're good enough. You don't have a real strong opinion either way about them. And, you know, when the marginal performers get closer to the marginal, like they, they're kind of barely doing their job and you just really can't decide whether they should stay or they should go, the bottom line is that the people that don't get along are probably going to get fired and the people that everybody likes are probably going to stay around. Oh, totally. And then so, I don't know if you saw the, the blog entry that I posted about this, the whole Bad Apple theme. NPR did this great piece where they basically did an experiment with students, and they had some actor actively play these really negative roles. This was was just shocking. uh, This is a guy in Holland somewhere, and and he actually had three kinds of actors that that joined a team as a bad apple and pretended to be dysfunctional in some way or another. Right. So if you're going to – my point is, and I'll I'll just summarize because I'm I'm assuming people can read the blog entry if they're interested, is you always will do very, very well to err on the side of getting rid of problem people as soon as possible. Like, yes, you want to try to work with them and change the behavior, but Mm -hmm. also (laughs) the the level of danger of having somebody that's actively hurting your team is really severe. Mm -hmm. So if anything, you want to err on the, the side of just getting rid of people. You know that are causing problems because yeah. the damage can be substantial. Yeah. So you you don't want to spend a lot of time, sort of like six months of trying to get them to not be totally abrasive to everybody on the team, is going to hurt your product a lot more than having that person there. Right. Right. 
So anyway, it's really this, the, the 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 truth is that there is no single answer because there's there are, you know six billion people on the planet and every one of them is different and you you have one of these people and and figuring out what to do with one of these people is you know wildly dynamic and may depend on a lot of things that are highly different depending <laughs> on the exact situation sometimes that you're in so don't don't take any advice from us. Do we have? Uh, let's do one more. I know we're going to edit some, so let's uh, let's take one more. I like that one. Hi, my name is Rudy Lacavara from Denver, and I just got done listening to podcast uh, forty four, where you guys were talking about architects uh, really being a meaningless title and being useless. And I have to say, I could not disagree more. Uh, in my in my career, I've noticed programmers really fall into. T- wait, wait, count the negatives. Could not disagree more. So he agrees. <laughs> No, I can't hear the question. I can't you're talking. <laughs> I just try to parse it. You've got your he disagrees guy with who can go yes, he disagrees. and uh, he, he's very good at building a module, building a page. He's a good, solid programmer, produces good, clean code. Uh, but you ask that guy to design an overall application, and it's going to be a disaster. And it's not because he's a bad programmer. It's just because you know you have to recognize there's a different skill set there. He has a good um, small-picture perspective, but he doesn't really have the big-picture perspective. And there's a, another level of programmer who is better able to, you know, maybe they have a deeper level of understanding of the technology, uh, but more importantly, they've, they've got that extra engineering design sense where they understand the different pieces of the architecture and how it needs to fit together and what those different pieces should look like. So... I really think that they're, they're, that person is the architect, and I really think that that's a valid title and a valid skill. Uh, where it seems a lot of people get off track is the architect not um, writing code. I completely agree with you there. Uh, if you're an architect, you don't want to write code. Uh, at that point, in my opinion, you're not a programmer, and you probably should just go you know, give up and go be a business analyst or something. But I'd, I'd be interested to know. Do you, do you think there's anything more there? Is it possible that an architect really is a valid, a valid term, and that there's a real skill there? Or do you think it's just something that is meaningless and has, you know, is 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 just a waste? So let me know. I'd be interested to hear. Uh, he makes a compelling point here. What's the compelling point? That there is. I mean, that there is a skill set that it takes to be able to design to to basically do large scale development, like to start a a big application figure out where to put things and how to organize the large project and how to build it and what the components should be. Well, I don't uh, think you need an, you don't, I don't think you need an architect. You just need you well, need a better I programmer. think two things. You need a better programmer or a more experienced programmer and you if you want to call that person an architect, what's wrong with that? Uh I think the name is actively harmful. <laughs> I really think the name has some power that holds sway over people in a negative way. It's kind of like the ring. You know, I think just, I think what he's maybe I, th- I think what he's describing is not. I mean, there may be people that call this an architect, but this is just sort of a senior. This is a senior programmer, and the trouble is that what the, the architect that we're debating with is not the person that says this program will work in the following ways. It's the person that says, "I have studied all the object broker methodologies on the marketplace today, and I have decided that we shall use Corba going forward in all applications in the company because I'm the company architect, and I have decided that Corba is awesome. Except that I've made this one little change to the way that the Corba factories work that I think we're going to use. So we've got our own slightly different version of Corba that works with the factories in this way because I'm smarter than all of you. Thank you very much." And that's yeah. the kind of architect that we don't like. Where it's a person that thinks that they're making decisions about 
like almost meta architecture. It's not like they're laying out the program and figuring out how the code's going to work. They're like, they think they're even above that. They're thinking like the meta. I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I think you don't really need architects. What you need is communication on the team. You need a bunch of programmers working collaboratively to make sure that what they're building makes sense. You know, because every programmer knows the part that they've seen, right? And and I agree, that, and I think the last time we brought this up, I actually talked about this as sort of a valid role for a, you know, someone to play in the organization, which is somebody to, to sort of be at a high level and, and see everything that's going on and not be so immersed in, in their details that they can't, you know, see the proverbial forest for the trees sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I, I think you do need collaboration on the team, and I, and I think you can get that through a bunch of programmers all looking at what they're doing and commenting on, on what the other programmers are doing. You know what I mean? I think you can get a collaborative effect that's, that's similar to that. Yeah, maybe. Okay. I, I just don't think it's it's right to bless one guy as like the guy who controls the entire architecture. I think that's I think the people working in their that's local. True. That's sort of a Levels that's, that's should be able to a, make those decisions. That's sort of like the way General Motors might design a car, and it worked real great for General Motors. And it's just not the way that that says you know Silicon Valley develops technology, especially new technology, new startups. Maybe it's more suitable to the you know the IT world of internal software, where you you you, you go into the big old insurance company, and there really are a lot of junior programmers who you know really don't know enough to design a new system and then there's some more experienced programmers that do know enough to design a whole system and so they get to design the system and it's very structured and those guys have the executive dining room and the special washroom they can go to and so yeah you're creating a cast system like we talked about so i think what you really need is you need a communication you have you have but but I think you need you need a communications are more than you need an architect, and that's why I came back to like the evangelist type position is more useful than quote unquote architect is somebody who's there to facilitate communication and make sure that everybody working on this big thing actually knows what the hell is going on, mm-hmm. right? They have some context and some some window into the the other parts of the system that are being built, so they're all being built you know in harmony. Mm-hmm. So I think you need communication. I think that's the by far the most important role. So it's almost like you need a manager at that point. I would almost go with having a really good what's what's like program manager? Isn't that didn't you have the whole thing about this? What is that? Somebody Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I mean that to me is more useful than the architect. Like, well, this I, I is totally now, 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 now a program manager the way I was defining it is a person that doesn't care how the code is implemented. They only care what it does. Okay, and, uh, so that serves the user, well, and they 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 actually you know actively resist any involvement in decisions about like what the code should be, how the structure of the code should be. Because okay, that's so maybe maybe it's team. a different thing. So on the develop, but once you're on the development team and you've decided what you're going to build, however you got to that decision, um, you know I can certainly imagine that there would be a person who just has more experience with like large scale. I mean, what did Dave Cutler do on Windows NT? Uh, pretty much design the whole thing but he right. had such deep experience yep. to me it wasn't about being an architect it was about my god the experience that guy had yeah well that's that's what this guy's saying it's just like i mean was he the architect of windows nt or the des- designer he wasn't quite the designer really because the designer was well the dave cutler who designed vms he was just copying it but <laughs> so uh and then fixing the mistakes that he made the first first couple operating systems that he built <laughs> uh but um 
Just, I mean, for the for the uninformed, there's a great book called Showstopper that talks about the development of the first version of Windows NT, and Dave Cutler was very much at the heart of that effort, and it was the third major, big, successful operating system that this guy built. And um, I was actually shocked. I had a friend that was on that team, and I, I may be mixing this up, but, I mean, it was a big, big team, and my friend's entire job was, you know how when Windows is booting, there's a blue screen? Mm-hmm. And there's text. It's text mode. Yeah, no, no you don't exactly usually see it anymore. They eventually got rid of it, and they just cover it up with a big GIF. But it's still there. And the there's a device driver for that blue screen. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which my friend, this is his first job at Microsoft, was to write that device driver, and not the Intel version, the MIPS version, because they had Intel and MIPS, and of course yeah. MIPS went nowhere. But um, uh, so that was his job. And one day he brought home a big old printout, a big stack of laser printed code c++ uh for his for his device driver and i was just sort of looking at trying to see if i could understand it it was too hard for me to to grok and the comment in the header had all these like little you know how in the old days people used to write before they understood how to use source version control there would be like a change log at the top of the comment at the top of every file with the person's email address that made the changes so dave cutler wrote the first version of all these files and I'm like, this is this is Dave C. Is that Dave Cutler? It's like, yeah. It's like he, he he got involved in the in the in the text mode boot sequence device driver for the MIPS architecture. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, so what do you do? <laughs> He's like, well, you know, I'm, I maintain it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it working, I guess. <laughs> There's you got the fifty. 50, I think I get 25 and 50 row mode. You got 80 columns and 132 column mode. So um, uh, he was, it was uh, he said, yeah, actually, basically what happened is Dave just kind of blasted through there and wrote everything. And, you know, he left a lot of stuff not fleshed out, but he really did kind of lay down the, the city grid, you know, mm-hmm. everywhere. And, you know, everybody that worked on NT in those early days was inheriting a file or, or, or a module uh, from Dave. Um, wow. So, but Dave Cutler is a legend, and we're talking sure. about building an operating system. This okay. is already a very extreme example. So I is agree it okay to call him an architect? I agree with you. So maybe in that case, yes. But I think for the, for the actually, crappy yeah. line of business apps that most developers are working on, oh, right. I, I don't think you need Dave Cutler. There's just, you know what, <laughs> realistically, like, what happens way too often is that an architect is just a programmer that wants a promotion, and they get the title of architect, and they either continue being a, a programmer with a fancy title, and they, they get it really young these days. I mean, they have two and a half years of experience. Or, uh, even worse, th- it's the person that stops coding and just starts reviewing every, every implementation of, of uh, you know, object brokers and deciding which one they like the best for everybody else to ignore. I think you're right. I think maybe if like there was some rule that said you had to have at least ten years of experience to even have the title, you have to have built a major I think operating that would be, system. <laughs> or yeah, you have to be Dave Cutler. <laughs> I mean, he's like a god. I mean, that's really yeah. an unfair comparison. Yeah. So uh, Linus, it's did, a minefield. I mean, part of this is just semantics, right? We're just talking about yeah. the value of a label. And I think I think it, Linus it, did the same thing. Um. You know, with, uh, with with the with the not so collaborative. He laid down the structure of the. It was just a kernel. But I mean, he sort of you know he did he did the first implementation, and then people came along and took over modules. So you could call him the architect of. Although on the other hand, he was really 
maybe he wasn't the architect of Linux because he was he, he sort of copied the architecture from Minix, and it wasn't you know at that time it wasn't really a novel thing. It was kind of a lot of ch- chasing taillights and. Whereas if you look at the NT architecture, they have these, these. It's got this sort of object-oriented thing. There are these objects that you get handles to and stuff like that. There actually is a an actual architecture in, in there. I, you know what? I think I'm trying to boil distill this down. I think what I would rather have, rather than just formal architect positions, is more of code review, where you have really experienced developers working with less experienced developers to get some kind of guidance and oversight. Yeah. I think that's on the type of typical projects that people work on, not building an entire operating system from scratch. Who even does that anymore? But like the typical apps that are typically being built don't need that hardcore level of architecture, the city grid, as you called it. It's a great right. example. Uh, and I think if you just had more mentoring and you had an acknowledgement of, okay, we want to have really experienced programmers mixed in with the less experienced programmers in a way that they can actually learn from each other and like collaboratively build stuff. Mm-hmm. That's much more valuable than you, you know, the idea that people lay down an architecture and other people just, you know, sort of drive down the streets and fill it out. Right. There's a lot of danger here. And I think it's all about how you do it. And part of it's just semantics. So I, I do agree with the caller that, it can have value. It all depends how you're doing it. Yeah, I think the term has been burned by a bunch of uh, unqualified people that, that have the title. And, and, and now, unfortunately, it's just a title of, of puffery, even though there might be something there to the idea of a more senior kind of architecture. But you're right. What you're, I think it goes back to uh, I, I, it's sort of that East Coast, West Coast thing. All right, we've driven that one into the ground. You want to take us out? We've probably been going for about six hours here. I'm going to have to go back. And yeah, we'll have to do some editing on this one. I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to cut out the, the really interesting part at the beginning where we talked about our revenue numbers and yeah, the hiring all the and secrets, the and the, all the secret badges that I'm not going to let anybody have. Yeah, I'm just going to have to delete that, so we'll probably get the show down to about an hour. Yeah. So uh, let's see, if you are a listener to this show and you would like uh, to um, call us up and, and run the risk that I will accidentally point at your, your recording and, and play the, uh, the um, I can't do it. What is, how do these shows usually end? <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to submit an audio question. 646-826-3879. Just call that number and record for about 90 seconds. And please tell us your, your name and and, uh, um, and also spell your name so we can put it correctly in the show notes. Keep it under 90 seconds. Or what you can do is record an MP3 or Ogvorbis file and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. There's a wiki link to from the show notes where volunteers from all over the world um, contribute to writing down transcripts of the show for the benefit of the audio uh, impaired. That's right. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. 
I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.